Before we get John to come up um, to speak, I would, um, John, Reed and I would read the passage that John will be talking about. So I'll start and then Richard will finish. So let's open our Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, if you've got it. If not, it will be on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 1. As a prisoner to the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the, of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is overall and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then from verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their de deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's make John feel really, really welcome as he comes up to speak. Vision Sunday. And Vision Sunday basically means I get to speak on whatever I want, so uh, enjoy. Um, no, it's a chance to share a bit about what I feel, and it, it will only be a bit, about what I feel that God is saying to us as a church at the moment, and also looking ahead, looking towards the, the year ahead. Um, and here's the thing, as I look ahead, what I find is a lot of unanswered questions. And if you know me, and you know my personality type, that's a challenge for me. I kind of like to know the path ahead. That's a tension I have to live in. Um, but I'm so glad how the, the change of meeting times back in June has worked in terms of bringing balance to the, uh, I nearly said to the force, bringing balance to the two morning meetings and achieving, you know, helping to kind of um, alleviate the capacity issues we were facing uh, in the short term. And that is really, really great. And by the way, thank you so much for your responsiveness to that. I know it's disruptive, it's only a half an hour change, but it actually meant a lot of reorganization and people thinking about which one they're going to come to. So thank you for your responsiveness. There is only a short-term solution, though. 
It's only short term. We trust that we'll continue to grow in number and therefore at some point in the not too distant future we will reach that same capacity and those issues that we faced in both meetings. And so the question is, well, what do we do then? What is next? And the question which has been really preoccupying me is what does, as our vision statement says, what does a diverse church of thousands that surrounds and saturates High Wycombe with the love of Jesus really look like? What does it look like? What shape does that have? And particularly that question comes in the context of having taken what was a very painful decision, but ultimately led by a desire to be obedient to what we felt God was saying, to not relaunch our Hazelmere site. That was a change of shape for us as a church. So what does it look like in the future? Honest answer is I don't really know at the moment. I don't know. I have lots of thoughts. I have lots of ideas buzzing around my head all the time. But I don't just want it to be a good thought or a good idea. I want to know where God is leading us. I want to know what is his blueprint for this church. And a few months ago, as I was kind of pondering this question, and again, probably a bit preoccupied by it, maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed by it, I felt God speak to me quite clearly. And it was Jesus who said to me simply, be still and know that I am God. I will show you the way. All you have to do is follow me. And I thought, oh, that's great. That's really good. But I don't know where you are or what you're doing, Jesus. And so I and the team of elders, it's just a kind of time of watching and waiting, seeking God, trying to see, trying to discern where is Jesus leading us, what path is he going on, trusting in his wisdom and in his timing because it's his church. He's building his church. The government is on his shoulders, not on ours. And I praise God and I thank God for that. And I think we all should as well. So lots of unanswered questions as I lie ahead. So it's not much of a vision talk, is it? But what I do want to focus on today is something that I think is absolutely critical for us at this time, and that is unity. Unity. And why do I think that is so critical right now? Well, because my observation is that in a, let's call it a post-COVID or a post-lockdown world, everybody, to different extents, everybody seems to be that much more offendable. Everybody seems to be that much more upsettable and polarised over so many different issues. We see it all around us in society. You know, we see that polarisation in society. We, we see that we, we've lost the ability to have a respectful debate about different ideas and different ideologies. We, we just lost the ability to do it. Instead, we have people getting entrenched and further and further entrenched in their own camps, gathering support around themselves on social media because that's the greatest echo chamber we can have. And then instead of having dialogue with somebody who has a different opinion or a different idea, it's throwing accusations and, and anger and vitriol and suspicion towards them rather than listening to what one another is saying. And it ends up in polarisation. I don't know if you've noticed, but at the moment, in the last couple of years, people always seem to be just up in arms about something. Oh, I'm up in arms about that. Isn't that awful? Isn't that terrible? And of course, what happens in society inevitably can and does creep into the church, particularly in times of change, because change is, is, is unsettling, change is disorientating, and we've been in a time of significant change over the last few years, and change is coming, change is up ahead. As I said before, we don't really know what it looks like yet, but it is coming. Change is on the horizon, and that can feel 
unsettling. And our unity, the togetherness of the people of God, is and will be absolutely critical in, the, in these times we're in and in the times we're coming into in the future. And as we were reminded at the start of the year in our preaching series on Ephesians 6, we are in a battle. We do have an enemy. And you know, one of the first things the enemy looks to attack is unity. Because he knows that disunity weakens the church's mission. Disunity gets us focusing on the wrong things. Disunity stops us growing and it stops us taking territory from the enemy. It stops, it stops the kingdom of God advancing around us, which is what we're here to do. So that's why I think this is pretty critical for us. Unity. And that brings us to the passage that Abby just read out and, and Rich just read out from Ephesians 4. What is absolutely clear from that passage straight away is that unity doesn't just happen. Even though, as Paul has described so beautifully in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and if you're following the New Testament in a year, we've just read chapter three today, I'm giving you a head start for tomorrow. We have the life of the Trinity within us. I mean, just think about that. The Spirit of God, the life of God, the life of the Trinity, the ultimate model of unity. And even in spite of that, unity doesn't just happen. It's something we have to work at and not take for granted. So verse three, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. There's something on us here to do. How do we do that? It's not easy. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us some guidance. And so I'm gonna look through this passage and draw out some things, draw out four keys that Paul gives us to pursue unity. So first key he gives us is humility. And this is a huge topic. Humility. Verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Well, the reason he needs to say that is because, of course, disagreements will happen. We're a church full of people from different backgrounds, different, you know, uh, different experiences. We're all flawed. Disagreements happen. It's normal. But he says when that happens, or, or you'll find there are some people who just really annoy you. They really get on your nerves. And you might not even be able to explain why, but that's what happens, isn't it? And what he's saying is, no, no, bear with one another in love. Disagreement happens, but bear with one another. Somebody really irritates you, bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Be gentle with one another. Be completely humble. Be completely humble. Well, how, what, what does that look like? Humility. The opposite of humility, of course, is pride. And nothing fuels division and disunity more than pride. If you think about it, it was pride that led to the ultimate division in the first place, the separation of man and God. It was that attitude of pride, the attitude of I know better than you, you are not the great I am, I am the great I am, I want to be in control of my life. It's pride, it's focus on ourselves. Pride's a huge topic that we don't have time to properly unpack today, but essentially pride boils down to self-absorption, self-centeredness, eyes on yourself always thinking about how things affect me. And it leads to all sorts of things like self-righteousness. It leads to things like being very, very critical of others all the time, putting people down, being sarcastic. Why? Because when I put other people down, it makes me feel like I'm superior. When I put other people down, it makes me think I'm better than them. At least I'm not like them because it's about making myself feel better. It's about validating myself. Pride leads to those kind of things. It leads to... Um, an inability to admit when you're wrong or to apologize when you're wrong or to apologize even when you're not wrong. But you've done something in a way that's 
really not great. It leads to the inability or the refusal to see something from another perspective, to see something from another angle. It leads to you being unable to take advice or correction. You're unteachable. You become defensive in the face of challenge. Your immediate knee-jerk reaction to challenge is defensiveness. And the barriers go up. It's pride. It's pride. And if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I know somebody like that. I hope you can see the irony in that thought. Because the fact is, pride is in all of us. It's in all of us. It's like a sickness of the human heart that to differing extents and in different ways affects or infects us all. It's not a question of if there is pride in your heart. It's a question of where that pride is and in what way it manifests, what way it's expressed in your life. And there are so many different ways that we don't have time to talk about today that pride can manifest in our lives. But in the context of unity, thinking specifically of unity, how does this work? Well, think about it this way. When you approach a disagreement with somebody, a difference of opinion with somebody, and pride is the driver, it will always be divisive. Always. It will always end in division. It will end with people, again, entrenched in their own camps with a no-man's land in between. That can't happen in the church. Simply cannot happen. But when somebody humbles themselves and approaches a conversation, approaches a disagreement with a desire, a genuine desire to learn something, to genuinely want to hear the other person as well as you possibly can, they may still think they're right, but they approach it with an attitude that says, I might not be seeing the whole picture here. There might be something I can't see. I've got blind spots. There might be something for me to learn here. That attitude of humility immediately diffuses the situation. It changes the tone of the conversation. And even if there's still disagreement afterwards, it's okay. It's not divisive. We're still friends. We can disagree about stuff. It's all right. We're still friends. It's a total difference. Unity requires humility. Here's the thing. Humility is a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing because in one sense, of course, we can work on it. We can, we can humble ourselves we can make a decision, we can choose to, to, to approach something or someone with humility, with an attitude of humility. We can choose, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm determined to not be defensive here. You, we can kind of gird ourselves before the conversation, say, I'm not going to be defensive, I'm going to do my absolute best to hear and listen to the other person. That's good, we should do that. It's, it's adopting, it's taking on an attitude of humility or being determined. I'm not going to let the prideful part of my heart rule in this situation. That's good, we should do that. But humility is tricky because in another sense, of course, you can't work directly on humility in yourself. Not on true humility anyway, because awareness of humility destroys humility, if you see what I mean. The most humble person in the world is not aware that they are humble. Because as soon as you become aware of it, you become proud of your humility. So when we try to work on humility, when we try to make ourselves humble we're probably only really working on the appearance of humility or the appearance of not being proud because as soon as we think we might be becoming more humble, we become proud of our humility. And the, the overarching theme there is that our eyes are always on ourselves. Through that whole process, our eyes are fixed on me. I'm trying to make myself more humble. How am I doing? How, and self-examination is good. It's biblical. But in terms of humility... That is the essence, is that our eyes are always on ourselves. The only way towards true humility is to take our eyes off ourselves and fix our eyes on 
Jesus is always the right answer. Okay, we fix our eyes on Jesus. True humility comes as a byproduct of fixing our eyes on Jesus, on the cross, wanting him, desiring him more than anything else in our lives. That's where true humility starts to come. Because when we contemplate the wonder of the cross, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss and I pour contempt on all my pride. We just sung it. It's true. When we gaze upon the wonder of what Jesus did, there's no room for pride. Theologian John Stott said this. He said, all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And it's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. We see things as they really are. There is no room for pride at the cross. You cannot come to the cross and remain proud. Our pride becomes ridiculous at the cross. There is no surer way of crushing pride and building humility in our lives than contemplating and gazing and being filled with the wonder of the cross, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we're going to be doing that later on as we break bread together. We'll come back to the cross again later in this talk as well. It's where we need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. As soon as we take our eyes off him... They inevitably come back onto ourselves and pride rears its ugly head again. It starts to creep back in. So humility is key to unity. Next key that Paul gives us is in verses four to six. He's just said to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The message is pretty clear. We are one. We are one. One body and we are joined together by all these other one things that he says. You know, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of all. We are one. What he's saying is that there are these big things, the most important things that bind us together. Focus there. Focus on those things, on what we have in common, rather than magnifying the small differences that can easily separate us. Don't get stuck on and obsessed by a particular small issue of difference in order, so that you become blinded to the fact that we are united by something so much bigger and so much more important than that. So, for example, we have to be so careful that our views and opinions on the issues of the day, the things we see in the world, that they don't become a source of division in the church. So, a a relatively recent example of that would be leave or remain. Because that then becomes, oh, you're a leaver and you're a remainer or you're a remoner. It becomes identity. We link our identity to these peripheral issues. There's this group in the church and there's that group in the church. No, we're one. It's not about leavers or remainers. We're one. Don't let that be your identity. What a rubbish identity when you have an identity in Christ. Don't do it. Don't let it be a source of division. Or a more recent example would be how we should or how we shouldn't have responded to COVID. And I'm not going to open that can of worms right now. But you see what I mean? It can become our identity. We become linked. We become tethered to these views. We become tethered to being, I'm part of this group. I'm in this group. You're in that group. And the division lines get drawn. No, that's not what is to happen in the church. 
Or it might be theological issues about the, the, what, what place does modern-day Israel have in the purposes of God? That has split churches apart, that issue. Or what about end times? How's that going to unfold? Or what about the creation? How did that unfold? Or what about the role of men and women in ministry? I'm not saying these things are not important. They are. They are important. I'm not saying they're not important, but compared to the big things, they are peripheral. They're peripheral issues, and we're not to get preoccupied and obsessed and stuck on peripheral things or latch our identity onto peripheral things. So a few years ago, we did a series a preaching series called The Creed, and it was based on the Apostles' Creed. It's a really good series. It's on our website. Go and listen to it. Um, And the Apostles' Creed is this ancient statement of faith, this ancient statement of the real fundamentals of Christian belief, you know, the doctrinal foundations that all Christians stand on regardless of your denomination. You might disagree on certain areas of theology and these kind of things, but these things, if you're called a Christian, you agree with those. These are the non-negotiables. To be a Christian, you have to agree with these foundations. And in the series, we talked about how there are different types of belief. There are some beliefs that are written in pencil, there are some beliefs that are written in ink, and there are some that are written in blood. And you know, a belief that's written in pencil, that's something, well, I I have a view on it, I kind of believe something about this, but I'm happy to be wrong. And if you show me something, I'm happy to change my mind. It's not central to my faith. It's easy to rub it out and write something else in its place. That's written in pencil. They're the things we just hold very lightly. If, if a belief is written in ink, that's obviously a much more important theological commitment that we have. And it's going to take some pretty compelling evidence to shift my mind away from that. I do believe this. I think it's really important. But I wouldn't die for it. I wouldn't fall on my sword for this belief or this doctrine. But the things written in blood, they're the things you would die for rather than renounce the things that we have in the creed, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself, God made flesh, that he came, he died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that, that he was raised to new life and we will be raised with him, that he is coming again. These are the things, these are the foundations, these are the things that are written in blood that we unite around because these are the things that transform us. These are the things that really, really matter because it's transformed us into who we are today. It's transformed us, it's transformed our hearts. It makes us what we are. These are the beliefs that are written in blood. The important things that unify us, keep your focus on those things. Don't get preoccupied with peripheral issues. Doesn't mean don't talk about them or don't think about them, but approach those things with humility and don't get preoccupied and obsessed by them. So humility, Focus on the big things that unite us. Next point that Paul gives is that unity requires diversity. And I'll unpack that. But unity requires diversity because it's not uniformity that we're after because that is boring. Uniformity is boring. It's not real unity. It's easy to be together with people who are just like you and who think exactly like you. No, the beauty of the church is that we're not like that. We are people from all different backgrounds, different nations, different experiences, but we are united around one thing. That's true unity, where you've got diversity being united together. That is a beautiful, glorious expression of the gospel. And we talked a lot during the 40 days prayer and fasting in our midweek meetings about different aspects of our diversity and the need for unity in them. So we looked at ethnic diversity, um, socioeconomic diversity, Uh, generational diversity, relational diversity, single and married. But Paul here talks about another kind of diversity. 
So verses 7 to 8, he says, But to each one of us, Christians, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then he explains what he means by that. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So that's what the grace apportioned is. It's gifts. Grace gifts. Every Christian is given gifts. Spiritual gifts. Every Christian. Christ apportions them. They're they're all different. And then he goes on to outline different leadership gifts in the church. So verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until, here it is again, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So Paul's talking about this diversity of gifting that we all have. All Christians have spiritual gifts, grace gifts to be used, and there are these leadership gifts, and these gifts are all about serving one another, building each other up, building up the church to reach unity in the faith. And then in verse 16, it says this, from him, from Jesus, the whole body, that's the metaphor for the church, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And that's the crucial line. As each part does its work. There are no redundant parts of the body of Christ. There are no retired parts of the body of Christ. And if you are redundant, if you're not using your gifts to build up the body of Christ in whatever way you can, actually, you're not just being passive, but you're actually hampering the body of Christ. You're hampering the movement of the church. It means the parts of the body are not all working together in unity. The point is this. Unity requires everybody playing their part. It's not about one person or or a team doing all the ministry while everybody sits and watches. That's passivity. That is consumerism. And we've got to root that out wherever it is because it easily rises in our hearts. It rises in my heart. Consumerism. Just want to be fed. Just want to, you know... We've got to root that out. Those leadership gifts I mentioned, they're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to do all the ministry. So one of my jobs as a leader, and I don't always do it well or perfectly by any means, but one of my jobs as a leader is to equip and mobilize you in the work of ministry, to be disciples who make disciples. That's one of the jobs of any leader. And here's the thing. If God has called you to be part of this church, and it is a calling, If he's called you to be part of this church, it's because he has a purpose for you here. He has things for you to do. He has things for you to contribute to. He arranges the parts of the body just as he sees fit. And of course, there are loads of unseen ways and organic ways, background ways, that people can use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. And that's great. It's what we should be doing. You know, it might be just, let's say you have a gift of, a pastoral gift, or you have a gift of compassion, or empathy, or hospitality, or serving. There are so many different gifts that people have, and many people have more than one. But, you know, we are to be using those just in relationship with one another, just in being alongside one another, and blessing people, building others up by being you, by being who God has made you to be, and using your gifts with one another. That's kind of background, organic, and it's not the kind of thing that's easy to measure, you know, you won't find stats on church suite on that kind of thing. It's like, how do we know? How are we doing well in this? I don't know. You hear stories, you hear pockets of it going on, but I don't know. You can't measure it. But let me give you a statistic that you can measure and that we do have, okay? So we have a lot of different serving teams in the church. 
Um, many teams operate on a Sunday morning to make Sunday morning happen. So we've got our King's Kids team, we've got a King's Youth team, uh, we've got our tech team, we've got refreshments and welcome and facilities, we've got our worship team, we've got a preaching team, we've got a prayer team and a prophetic team. All these teams that make Sunday mornings happen. And then we've got a load of teams that operate at other times as well. So like a youth team and a student team and King's Table team and a cat team and uh, little stars learning English and loads of teams going on in the church that are essential to how the church works and essential to the various ministries that we are involved in. And again, let me just reiterate, these serving teams are not the only measure of people using their gifts. And there are some legitimate barriers that people face, I know, that means it's impossible for you to be part of a serving team. So, just being clear about that. But having given that caveat, let me give you the statistic. Out of, a, out of around 420 church members, so that's adults, not including kids and youth, adults who have made a commitment to this church. They've said, yes, this is where I'm called to be. God is calling me here, and I'm here to be part of this community, to contribute and to, to do whatever I can to help build this body of Christ. That's what a church member is. So out of 420 church members, 53% are in one or more serving teams, which means that 47% of church members are not in any serving team. I'll just leave that with you for a minute. Now, why am I saying that? Why am I sharing that? Well, I'm not sharing it to bring condemnation. I'm not sharing it to guilt people into getting into a serving team. That's counterproductive, actually. If you feel like you're getting into a serving team because you're forced to, it, 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 it's not worth it. It's just not. It's like with giving. If you feel forced to give, don't. Don't bother. So it's not about condemnation. It's also, I'm not sharing it so that people who are in serving teams get up in arms. Yeah, it's always us doing all the work, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we talked about that before, didn't we? That's kind of divisive. That's us and them. It's groups. It's identity. It's ultimately a prideful response. So don't do that. But there is a challenge. There's a couple of challenges here for us. Um, first of all, there is a challenge for those who are not in any serving team, who have no real legitimate reason to not be. Um, God has given you gifts. It tells us here, we believe this is the word of God. God has given you gifts if you're a Christian. Are you using them? to build up the body of Christ. It's about everybody playing their part. You might not know what your gifts are. That might be the big barrier for you, but my advice would be just get involved somewhere. Just have a look around think, well, I could get involved there. You'll soon start to find out what your gifts are because people will tell you. But don't stand back on the edges. You've got gifts to use, so use them. Be involved. So there's a challenge there, but there is also a challenge, I think, for those who are in serving teams. And it's to do with your response to this kind of thing. My guess is that if you're on a serving team, your serving team is short of people, because I think every team in the church is. How do you respond to the fact that your team is short of people? Do you complain and moan about it? Assume that everybody else is lazy and expect the office to sort it out? Because I'm telling you now, I'm not going to. Here's a different way. How about this? How about take some responsibility for recruiting somebody into your team? See the gifting in somebody else. Draw it out of them. Say, I, it's called shoulder tapping. Tap someone on the shoulder. It's, 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 I, I see the way you interact with people. You'd be brilliant in this team. How, why don't you come and have a go? It's, it's, it's great fun. I love it. 
See the, almost see the greatness in somebody, see the gifting in somebody and draw it out of them. Cast vision for why your team is so important. Because the best recruiters for any team are the people of the team. The best recruiters for the King's Kids team are the King's Kids team. Because they see the amazing things that God is doing among our children and the sheer privilege of being a part of that, a part of equipping and raising the next generation. Amazing. Why would you not want to be a part of that? I mean, I can think of some reasons. But seriously, draw people in. The best recruiters for the King's Table team are the King's Table team. Best recruiters for the Welcome team are the Welcome team. People who have grasped the vision for why this ministry is important. Why? How is this contributing to our vision as a church? How is this contributing to the mission and purpose God has given us? They've grasped it for why their ministry is important and they're using their gifts in that ministry. I think some people are just waiting to be asked, waiting to be invited. So let's invite If everybody on a team was able to recruit one person to that team, the team doubles in size. No more problem of shortage. So we have a diversity of gifts in the church. It's just fact. God has done that. That's what he does. He apportions these grace gifts as he sees fit. But there is a unity of purpose in that diversity of gifts. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody. And our unity actually is not all that it can be until everybody is playing their part. Now, as we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through humility, through focusing on the big things that unite us, through everybody playing their part and using the diversity of gifts God has given, the passage in Ephesians 4 tells us that leads not only to unity, it also leads to maturity, spiritual maturity, which in turn will strengthen and enhance unity. So verses 12 to 15 Paul's just talked about these gifts. We're all to use these gifts so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love... We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. There is a link here that Paul is drawing between going after unity in all the ways that he's just said and attaining spiritual maturity, which is ultimately about becoming more like Jesus. That's what maturity is. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, to different extents, we're all spiritually immature in different ways. Because there's always more transformation that needs to happen in our hearts to become more like Jesus. None of us are there. So there's elements of spiritual maturity in all of us. I mean, even Paul says here, he he says, then we will no longer be infants. Paul's putting himself in the same category as an infant. He's saying, but if we do these, then we will no longer be infants. Everybody is born, just like you're born as a baby, physically, you are also born spiritually as a baby. But the intention is for you to grow. But there's spiritual immaturity in all of us to different extents. But inevitably, there will be some in the church who are spiritual babies. And it's not about the length of time you've been in the church or the length of time you've been a Christian. That's not a mark of maturity. That's just getting old. (laughs) Sorry. Um, There will be spiritual babies in the church. What 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 are the couple of marks of a spiritual baby? Well, one is, is you lack discernment. Tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. You lack discernment because you don't know the word of God. You don't know your way around this. 
And so you hear some teaching here. It's like, oh yeah, that's what we should focus on as a church. Or you hear some teaching over there and it's like you're not even able to spot. That's totally heretical. Don't listen to it. You've got no discernment. That's a spiritual baby. A baby doesn't have a lot of discernment. Another mark of spiritual immaturity or being a spiritual baby is just going back to the first point about pride and humility, self-centeredness, self-absorption. Always thinking about how things affect you always offended by something, always thinking about how I'm being treated, unable to take criticism or correction, unable to apologise, always accusing others of their own motives. It's pride, ultimately, and we are told to deal with pride in our hearts. Why am I saying this? The reason I'm saying this is because we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter spiritual immaturity in the church. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But equally, when you are aware of it in yourself, don't put up with it. Don't put up with it in yourself when you spot it in your own heart. Don't say, that's just the way I am. Oh, don't say that. Do you think Jesus died on a cross for you to stay just the way you are? (sighs) Lose that. Don't do it. Just the way I am, please. (sighs) Have you even met Jesus, if that's the attitude? We are called to grow. We have the life of God within us. The Spirit of God lives in us if we are born again. And we are to grow. We are to grow in maturity. And then the final mark of maturity and unity that Paul chooses very specifically to highlight, and this is the final key that I'm drawing out here, he chooses to say this in the light of maturity. He says, instead, instead of being infants, instead, speaking the truth in love. He chooses that as the mark of maturity, speaking the truth in love, you become more like Jesus. And of course, speaking the truth in love is a phrase that's been used by people at times to justify saying some truly awful things with no love whatsoever. You know, I'm just speaking the truth in love. What are you though, really? Because I don't, I don't feel very loved right now. I feel kind of condemned. I feel kind of, doesn't feel very loving. But there's no doubt we need a community that is able to do it well to be able to speak the truth in love, to be able to be absolutely honest but also overflowing with the sweetness and the tenderness of love. You need both in the right balance because love without truth is terrible because it means we never challenge anybody because we're afraid of it feeling unloving. We're afraid of upsetting the person so we don't challenge anybody but we all need people who can challenge us and show us our blind spots. I need that. We need people who can tell us the truth about ourselves and we need to have the humility to receive that well as well. But we all need that, otherwise we don't grow. We stay spiritually immature. But equally, truth without love is deadly because it's truth delivered in anger or in pride and it cuts and it wounds and and it's meant to. And it leads to division and it leads to bitterness. We need both truth and love together. But the reality is, is that in our own strength, we're incapable of doing that. We're incapable of keeping that balance of truth and love because of our own selfishness, our own sin, our own pride. We avoid telling the truth because we're afraid the person will be upset with us. We don't want people to be upset with us. We want people to like us, which is ultimately showing more concern for who? For me, not the other person. It's about me. It's me again. It's pride. It's a prideful response ultimately But also, we avoid love sometimes because we really want to put that person in their place because they really deserve it. We want to show them that I am right. I want to win the argument. 
And again, it's a prideful response. It's being more concerned about me than about truth or love or the other person. And so again, as we come into land here, just like with developing humility, it's where we've come back to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on the cross because the cross is the ultimate message and model and of the perfect balance of truth and love. Because what is embedded at the heart of the cross, the meaning of the cross, is a very, very hard truth for us to hear. It's very stark. It's very hard. The truth that we hear at the cross, that we see at the cross, is this, is that you are so utterly lost You are so mired in sin. You're such an object of wrath to God, displeasing to him. Your sin is so abhorrent to God that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can possibly rescue you and save you. Nothing less than that. That's a pretty hard truth, but it's true. But that truth is coupled with the beautiful reality that Jesus expresses, which is this, that you are a person of such value You're a person of such worth. You're a person of such significance that I'm willing to die for you in this way. I choose this for you because I love you. You are so loved. You don't deserve it, but you are so loved by Jesus. And if we can really spend time gazing at that truth, if we absorb it, if we really take it in, receive the truth and the the love of the gospel, let that fill us. Let that transform us. It's why we spend time in worship. It's why we spend time in the word to let this stuff fill us and transform us and change our hearts. When we do that, that is when pride goes and humility grows. That is what will humble you out of ever being able to tell the truth to somebody abrasively and pridefully and without love. And it's what will affirm you out of ever avoiding the truth because of your need to please people. Because when you realize that you are loved and affirmed by Jesus himself, You don't need to please people. You don't need to worry about what people think of you. Only then will we be able to speak the truth in love just as we need to. And a community that does that is a united community and it's a community that are no longer infants. So humility, focusing on the big things that unite us, everybody using their diversity of gifts, speaking the truth in love. These are the things that both bring and are signs of unity and maturity. And this is what we need. It's what we need if we're to continue moving towards the amazing vision that God has for us. Unity is crucial. Unity is critical. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Amen.